You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, discussing Toni Morrison's 2008 novel, A Mercy, one of her last books, one of her last three books, her third to last book. Okay, whatever. Uh, so yeah, uh, this is like my fifth Toni Morrison novel, and I really enjoyed this one. So we're just going to hop in, give a brief overview, talk about some themes, the characters, the setting, and then kind of some random themes, really just one random theme. And that's it. So, okay, a brief overview. The basic idea here is there's this guy, the novel opens up, uh, not from this guy's perspective, it opens up from a different person's perspective. But the through line is, uh, Jacob Vark is collecting on a debt and he doesn't like trading in flesh, but in order to recoup some of that debt, he agrees to take on a slave, and that pays for um for what this guy owes him. And the person that he takes is sold kind of by her mother. It's a weird way of saying it. She's not sold by her mother, but like basically her mother is terrified for her. The man that owns them is going to abuse her daughter. So she urges Jacob to do it. He agrees to it for that reason. And it kind of seems like he's a good guy. And then we follow, but you know, he's got obviously his own stuff. But so then we follow him, his wife, and the three women who live on his property. And um, all three of them are slaves, but it's like kind of gray. So let's start with that gray, because I think the setting has something to do with it. It's 1680s Ohio. Vark is a immigrant. I think it's Ohio. Maybe I just assumed it was Ohio because it's Toni Morrison, but it's 1680s America. And it kind of feels like it's this weird kind of like pseudo America, like America hasn't fully congealed yet into its peak racism. That's not to say that there wasn't the what what do they call slavery? The, pecu the peculiar institution wasn't already instituted, but like there was still some gray area. And I think this has been talked about a lot over the last couple of years and certainly over all the decades of the 20th century about how there were indentured servants and there were natives, Native Americans who owned slaves. And there was, um, you know, kind of like a, it wasn't all 100% black and white, right? Uh, but really, it, it you know, ultimately is codified into being black and white, and certainly that's the American case system. But this feels like it's a little bit more murky, where, like, things aren't as clear yet. And obviously, you know, America's not a nation yet, so, like, not everything has been codified the way it would eventually be codified 100% into the law, written into the Constitution, three-fifths compromise, all of that, setting up things that eventually led to the Civil War. This feels like it's still... You know, it's literally a hundred years before it becomes a nation. And so everything's kind of a little bit murky. So that's that's the setting. And then that murkiness, I kind of, you know, think that that bleeds into the beginning of the novel. I, I don't know if that was Toni Morrison's aim to write in that way, but it's got this impressionistic quality to it. The beginning of the novel does. It's kind of poetic and, 
you could, it's even like challenging to get into because you don't know what's going in. You kind of just hop in in media res and you're, you're reading from the perspective of a character who you don't really know. And then it hops into Jacob's story and then Jacob's story hops into a different character. And in each chapter, there's no number. And, uh, you know, you kind of got to read each chapter to get an idea of who is narrating the chapter. So I think that Toni Morrison kind of just paints, you know, it's almost like abstract expressionism or something. She just paints and then you kind of make the picture out yourself. And by, you know, 30 pages in, you, you've made it. It's a short book. I mean, the whole book is, I got it here. You can hear those pages. The whole book's only 167 pages, 168, 167 pages. So it's not very long, but it's so packed with stuff. And so, yeah, I thought one thing that was great about the writing style is that kind of impressionistic, poetic thing that kind of makes the novel feel uh, murky in a good way. Like you, 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 uh, you have to work to get to, to figure out, to orient yourself in each chapter, to figure out who's talking and about what. And that also, you know, kind of, uh, reflects the, the time period where it's kind of murky. It's a new place. It's the new world. Not everything has been codified yet. There's a lot of people who don't really understand their standing in the world. And, um, you know, you have people like Jacob Vark, who's not exceptional, but in a way he is exceptional. And yeah, so I, I thought that was one thing. And then the other thing was just the writing throughout the novel is very compact and tight. And, you know, when you're a master of literature like Toni Morrison, you can write a sentence and that can like reveal an entire character's psyche. It can point to themes that she covered throughout her writing career. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that because I thought there were a couple of just masterful passages and sentences that I highlighted. Probably going to quote more than I usually do from this novel because, um, yeah, I think the sentences are so strong. It's like each sentence of this book is, uh, I wouldn't say perfect, but like, you know, you, you wouldn't change it, you know? And that's why it's 167 pages. I think a lesser writer would probably write 400 pages. I read a historical fiction novel earlier this year by a different writer who shall remain nameless. And the book was really long and it had some fine passages or whatever, but it was just really long and like, I imagine that Toni Morrison would have written the same book in like a third of the words and let her readers do the work, do the heavy lifting of like, all right, where am I? How am I oriented in this, in this space? And then when you figure it out, it's so much more rewarding and it feels so, so much more rich and textured. All right, let's talk about the characters. The other thing I think about this book from the character point of view is that it's very female centric. So it's 1680s and it's kind of that murky America I'm talking about. And I think one of the reasons why the codified thing matters, like the racial codification, why that matters is because, because it's a little bit murkier, it allows Toni Morrison to, yeah, okay, of course, comment on race. She's always going to do that. Uh, and, and at least in all of the books I've ever read, but this way, because the race thing isn't the number one thing, I think gender comes to the forefront. And so I think this is a very feminist text. And I think that Morrison uh, wanted to concentrate on like women's plights, because like without codification in America, necessarily the racial code being 100%, you know, stapled down, like hammered down, like this is what it's going to be. The female thing is certainly, 
staple down, hammer down. This is what it's going to be. And I think there's like a shared women are suffering thing throughout this book. So you have the mother who sells her daughter Florence, who doesn't sell, excuse me, urges Jacob Vark to buy her daughter from the abusive um, guy that owes a, a debt to uh, to Jacob Vark. So you have her, you have Florence who was sold. You have Lena, who is a Native American woman who is also, I mean, I'm pretty sure she's a slave and she's owned by the Vark family. You have Vark's wife who, yeah, okay, she's got the standing of being a white woman and a landowner through her husband, but she was basically sold into marriage. And um, I can't remember the reason why her family didn't like her, but they didn't like her. And then you have Sorrow who was also sold and she's like super dark and, um, you know, she's like feral, like the way she was raised was on a boat and she's got boils on her neck. And I say she's feral because that's the way I think that Toni Morrison wanted her to be portrayed. I think she wanted to do the Flannery O'Connor thing. Flannery O'Connor has this quote about how, like, when you want to make a metaphor in literature, you got to make the metaphors like giants, you know, you got to scream at people because um, you want it to be like a, a brutal realization of what and how these people are, were regarded. So Sorrow, her name is Sorrow. She's got boils on her neck. Her hair is super kinky. She's super dark. And so I think it hammers home hammers home the point of how, because of these things, she was regarded as like a non-person or some kind of, you know, animal or something, a beast. Plus she talks to herself. She sees apparitions. Uh, she sees a doppelganger twin that, you know, only she can see. And so people think she's crazy. She's like every negative thing that people think about black women is in this character, I think. I think that was what Toni Morrison was going for. So, but anyway, all four of those women, right? Lena, or five women. Lena, Florence, Sorrow, the woman of the house, Miss Vark, can't remember her name, and then the mother who sold Florence, excuse me, the mother who urged Vark to buy Florence. Those five women really are, to me, the, the basis of the novel. And then all the male characters are just kind of window dressing. So I, I said that Vark um, was presented as a good man, but, he, you know, there are limits. So when he decides to buy Florence, it's to replace his daughter, Patrician, not Patricia, Patrician, who um, got kicked in the head by a mule. And so on page 26, he says, well, he thinks to himself, and if she got kicked in the head, meaning Florence, if she got kicked in the head by a mare, the loss would not rock Rebecca so. Oh, that's his wife's name, Rebecca. So he's like a good dude because he's going to buy Florence so that she doesn't, uh, you know, a good dude is probably not the best description, but he's going to buy Florence so that she's not abused by this dude, you know, this this other landowner guy. And um, he's going to do so to try to please his wife. So like that's, you know, whatever, nice. But then in the same breath, he's like, yeah, and if she dies, if she gets kicked in the head by a mare, it's like, oh, well, she's just like, you know, a piece of property, a piece of black flesh. So like, nah, you know, no big deal. So like, that's not great. And then on the very next page, Toni Morrison does this thing, and it's pretty, you know, I think relatively subtle, is that uh, Jacob sets out on his journey. I think Florence is in tow, or maybe she's sent along later, probably in tow. And he sees an animal being abused and he talks about how he just can't stand to see an animal being abused, et cetera, et cetera. And it really hammers home the point of like, well, okay, so if a mare 
kicked your replacement daughter in the head, you, you know, wouldn't be a big deal because she's black. But like this animal being abused just like makes him upset. And I think that contrast is no accident, very skillful. And just one of those things that, you know, Toni Morrison does without having to tell you, hey, 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 look, look, you know, she's doing the show thing of just, yeah, in the very next page, he sees an animal being abused. It makes him upset. This is making this uh, analogy, in this case, not a metaphor, but making this analogy 10 feet tall so that you can get it. But I'm not going to tell you, you know, I'm not going to spend two pages talking about this contradiction. I'm just simply going to put it there and you'll have to come to that conclusion yourself. So that's Jacob. And then uh, another note on Florence, who I think ends up becoming the best character in the entire novel. Like she's the thing that ends up driving it forward, right? So it's her who sets the novel in motion. She's uh, resold to Jacob Vark. And then on his property, Vark is building a new house, a second house for whatever reason. And when he does so, he hires a blacksmith who's a free black man and uh, Florence falls in love with him. And then that, her pursuit of him, drives the novel forward. Her pursuit of him plus the fact that uh, Rebecca falls ill and Florence is sent to go get help from him. But basically... It's her pursuit of him. Like, that's that's what drives the novel forward. So Florence is the most interesting character. And uh, there's a couple great moments with her. I thought the first great moment is on page 102 through 104. She she kind of just loses her mind. Like, she, so she she's out looking for this blacksmith guy. And um, at this point, you know, they had already, they had been uh, making love and it was really like, you know, it, it, somebody had been spying on them. And so we get descriptions of it th uh, from their perspective. And, you know, it's talked about in this way. That's like, I'd never seen anything like that. And you can imagine like 17th century, probably some really chaste lovemaking and also some really like, you know, animal style lovemaking, just like, all right, you're a woman, I must thrust into you. So just sit there and take it. And this is described as like passionate love, you know, actual lovemaking. Um, not just the rudimentary, like, okay, we're going to um, copulate to as a biological imperative, you know? So, uh, so she's out there looking for him and she's worried about uh, the people she's traveling with. She runs away, she loses her way and she kind of is, you know, nuts, you know, by this time she's thirsty and needs food and is starting to lose her mind a little bit. And this is, goes back into, um, Toni Morrison writing in this impressionistic style that these pages are just like long blocks of text without paragraph breaks. And, uh, it's, it's this great, you know, piece. And then eventually what happens is these people happen upon her, these two native Americans or several native Americans who are out on a hunting trip or whatever. And they give her a piece of leather and some water, excuse me, a piece of leather. It's described as leather, but it ends up being jerky, but, um, a piece of jerky and some water. But so what what also is great about this part too is that those Native Americans appear as if apparitions and then sorrow, you know, was seen an apparition. And that's another theme of this novel and of a lot of Morrison novels. There's this like blending of what is reality, you know? Um, the novel that this one most closely links up to is Beloved because of the mother-daughter thing, but also because of the the apparition thing. And I think that's another thing that the setting really lends itself to. It's this early America. There's still a ton of people who are scared of witchcraft. You know, there's a lot of um, 
folk wisdom and people believing in demons. There's a whole demon passage in this book. So you, you're you on this journey and uh, you're reading this story and you're like, of course, thinking like, uh, well, these people are crazy. They don't have science. So they don't believe in these. They don't, they don't, uh, they believe in these things because they don't have science. But as you're reading it, you're trying to figure out in the world of the book, should you be believing in the apparitions or are they actually not real apparitions? So, you know, what is, what is the actual rule of the universe of the book? Like apparitions do exist or people who exist in this world believe in apparitions and it's never really clear. And so I thought that, you know, again, goes back to the, the delightful murkiness of this novel. But so anyway, back to Florence. So she eventually finds the blacksmith and, um, this is the part where I really think the book becomes like a feminist tract because what happens is she's, she's hoping that, um, that the blacksmith will take her and, you know, it'll be like it was before. Now she doesn't care to like be married to him. That's not what she's looking for. She's just so beholden to him that the way she makes him feel, I mean, she says in the novel, like, it doesn't matter if he doesn't want me. It doesn't matter. Or excuse me. It doesn't matter if he doesn't want to like settle down with me. I, I don't care. I would give it all up for just like, you know, another chance to have his embrace. But due to some circumstances, um, he rejects her, you know, he rejects her on page 141. So a good, we're almost through with the novel and he rejects her. And, um, when he does that, he tells her that she's become a slave. And this is very interesting because he's a free man. And okay. So we have to first talk about him. So Lena earlier in the novel says that, uh, when she, or excuse me, Lena, um, Lena doesn't say it. The narrator, the, the omniscient narrator, um, says the only one, meaning Lena, who foresaw the disruption, the shattering a free black man would cause. He had already ruined Florence. So this is what Lena is noticing that this free black man is going to cause this this disruption, you know. And then uh, there is a disruption. He has ruined Florence, like he's made her completely nuts for 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 him. And, um, and then he goes away and then Rebecca falls ill and Florence goes on her trip and then she goes to see him. And then Lena's prophecy kind of comes true because yes, Florence had been ruined in one way. Like, and I don't think they meant like in the biblical sense, I think Lena meant like ruined her for practical, you know, just walking around and being a human. All she could have on her mind was this guy. But so when she goes out, uh, or, or, so when, when he leaves, you know, she, she can't resume normal life. So then she follows him and he rejects her and calls her a slave. And so it's like this, this, um, it's, it's like in beloved, there was the, I believe, I think the main male character's name was like Paul, but you know, in that novel, it's explained that the reason the black dudes who were on the farm were so wild is because They'd gone through slavery and then been released. And that justification is removed here. You know, the blacksmith is a free black man. Perhaps he escaped slavery, whatever. He's also got some like mythological murky background. He's, a, he's kind of a healer. But anyway, he doesn't have a justification for the way he treats Florence. And then he rejects her and calls her a slave. And 
it's 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 telling that he at least in my mind so he goes and he disrupts her life sets her on this track where she's completely um infatuated with him she can't do anything but be with him that's all that she wants and then after he does that to her he just cuts her loose and so he he just betrays her completely and i I took it as a as a commentary on uh, uh as a commentary about um relationships between black men and black women because i i remember tony morrison talking about essentially how black men weren't holding up their end of the bargain in many relationships and uh i thought this was kind of a commentary on that and i thought it was an interesting commentary on it and i, and I think that's why this is a a feminist novel or excuse me at least concentrates more on the feminist aspects of Morrison's thought than the racial aspects because I, I think she was like trying to consciously move race to the background just a bit not all the way but just a bit and concentrate more on female relationships we have the female friendship between Lena and Rebecca we have the mother-daughter relationship between Florence and her mother we have Sorrow's relationship with her doppelganger and really nobody else besides the, the men who just use her for sex. And then, and also we're not really clear about how, I was not clear at all about how Sorrow got pregnant. But Florence is the one who's really beholden to a man, like really beholden to a man. And it drives her nuts. And then she gets accused of being a slave by a free black man. And that's kind of interesting. You know, you could you could imagine... I don't want to talk about this guy again, so I'm not going to name him, but you can imagine an independent thinker of today, right? Maybe somebody who's been in the news recently who regards himself as not being a slave, right? Not having a slave mentality, which is what uh, the blacksmith says about Florence is that she's become a slave. Obviously, he meant in the mind. She was always a slave, right? But he means a slave of the mind. But you can imagine an independent thinker of today who has, uh, who doesn't date black women, and uh, as a disclaimer, I should say that my wife is not black, so it's not like I'm saying you have to date black women if you're black, if you're a black man. But what I'm saying is the commentary here about specifically treating black women a certain way and then accusing them of being narrow-minded or having a slave mentality or some kind of uh, negative thing is the reason why they were treated this way rather than it just being you. You were a no-account, you know, you were a no-account dude. <laughs> Uh, you, you were a no account dude and then you went out and treated this woman this way and then rejected her when she went through the depths of hell to get to you and then that's it you know and she Florence even like in the novel the reason why he rejects her I'm not going to get into it you know read the book but the reason why he rejects her she's remorseful about it you know she's like damn I didn't mean to do that you know he's angry about this whatever but like why doesn't he give me at least like a little bit of compassion, a little bit of empathy? And she, you know, she's, she's like, I don't see any of what he's giving to other people being given to me after I was just his, you know, I was supposed to be that for him. And now I'm just instantly not, it, it got shut off like a water tap, you know, she doesn't say water tap. They didn't have those then, but, um, yeah, so I think that's the crux of the novel. Well, one of the cruxes of the novel. I think you could also argue the mother-daughter thing is at the center of it. Female relationships in general are at the center of it. But I, I thought this was the most interesting theme in the novel. So the concept of um, 
yeah, female relationships and then specifically male-female relationships in the black community and black men uh, not being there for black women or rejecting black women or finding fault with black women, especially after being with black women and then not accepting blame. And then the last thing is after she's been rejected. Um, so she's accepted herself now as this, as this slave, but like, she's also just angry, you know, and the anger is there and she, uh, well, I'll just read the quotes from page 160. She says that it is the withering inside that enslaves and opens the door for what is wild. I know my withering is born in the widow's closet. But let's just concentrate on that first part. It is the withering inside that enslaves. So it's like she's a slave to her pain, right? And then opens the door for what is wild. So that's why she's been unleashed, you know, because when she leaves the blacksmith's house and returns to the Varks, she's not the same Florence anymore. Something has been broken and it's not going to be repaired. And so, uh, yeah, I, I thought this was, you know, the, the back of the book, I was reading it because I wanted to know the um, the time period. I, I like to read the back of the book after I read the novel. And they've compared this novel to Beloved for those reasons. But I, or excuse me, for the reasons of the mother-daughter thing. But I, I thought, you know, the male-female relationship was more to the point personally. You know, because in Beloved, it's way more, um, the male, or excuse me, mother-daughter thing is way more explicit and important. But in this one, I, the center of the novel is this, black male, black female relationship. And the fact that Florence gets treated the way she does. And then at the end of the novel, I mean, literally seven pages before this thing is over, she talks about how the withering inside of her is what has enslaved her and how that opens the door for what is wild. Like she's just been unleashed by this man who's ruined her. And, uh, I also think it's, 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 it's poignant that it, you know, what ruined her wasn't, having sex or whatever. Tony Morrison wouldn't write some shit like that. What ruined her was the not having her love reciprocated, you know? And again, she wasn't after like, oh, we got to get married and you got to do this. And that. she just wanted her love reciprocated. So, um, after her sacrifice, you know? So I, I thought that was really the point. And, um, I loved it. I, it's, it's a really good book. It's 167 pages. It took me like, uh, you know, it took me a while. I was doing some other stuff, but it took me a while to get through. It's, it's heavy, man. And, and so I'll end with just like, um, Tony Morrison's ability to pack a punch in a sentence. So here are the, here's the random thing I wanted to talk about, because I think this is how, you know, how Tony Morrison felt about America in like two sentences. All right. So these are in different pages. I didn't write down, I did not write down the page numbers, but on one page, she's talking about uh, Rebecca Vark's, um, you know, she's coming to terms with the fact that her husband's building a second house on their property that they don't need. And she says, she decided that the satisfaction of having more and more was not greed, was not in the things themselves, but in the pleasure of the process. Now, you could read that as like, oh, well, she's just saying like, um, you know, it's nice to make things and, you know, maybe she's referring to art or something like that. But you could also read it as just the way a lot of Americans operate, a lot of people in the world in general, the way the whole capitalist system is set up, the way all of our modus operandi is, is like, well, I'm not being greedy. 
I just like to, you know, get some extra stuff, you know, it's something new and shiny. I don't feel good. I'll go shopping. I would like a second house. Why? I deserve it. Um, I'll give myself a third, you know, kept woman who's a slave, you know, not, not because, not because I'm greedy and need more work done, but because like, you know, it's nice to have one around and we'll just get the, the process of bringing them up right. Bringing my slaves up right is nice, you know? So I don't know. I thought that was, I thought there was a lot in that one sentence. And then at the end of the novel, we get the, I mean, I've spoiled the novel by now. So if you, if you uh, have not read it, it's too late. But anyway, at the end of the novel, we, the last chapter ends with the mother talking and she's explaining her viewpoint and why she did what she did. And she says, uh, I was Negrita, everything. Language, dress, gods, dance, habits, decorations, song, all of it cooked together in the color of my skin. Here we have Toni Morrison in one sentence explaining the entire Western Hemisphere uh, racial case system in one sentence. And, you know, I never, I don't, I I think I say that, that idea like once every couple of weeks, but I don't really like you know, obviously say it as well as Toni Morrison said it, but that, but that's the idea. All of a sudden it's just black, you know, all of a sudden it's just black. And before it was thousands of tribes and different languages and customs and habits. And then all at once it was black. And that was, that's what she was saying when she opened up that sentence by saying, I was Negrita. She means when she arrived on the slave ships to, I believe it was Barbados, she became Negrita after being whatever she was in her original language all of her life. So, yeah, I thought those two sentences just kind of elucidate Toni Morrison's viewpoint on America that, you know, she always had and always talked about and it's in all of her novels and it just permeates all of her novels. But again, without her having to beat you over the head with it, in this case, not even making a metaphor that's 10 feet tall, just in, you know, whatever, 20 words or so, two sentences, 40 words, just giving it to you. And you, if you're paying attention, you get it and you're like, right there, that's it. You know, and you make a little note in your book. And then on top of everything else, there's a whole nother theme going on besides, but, um, that that's, that's why she was a master, uh, rest in peace. And one of the greatest writers of all time. Um, now, now it makes sense. I've been watching too much basketball. <laughs> a great, great writer. I don't, I don't think we should be talking about writers like they're basketball players. One of my favorite writers. And yeah, this was a great book. I was surprised. I didn't think it was going to be so good because, you know, it's a later work. And you know how it is. Um, how many great books does any one person have in them? But I've never read a bad uh, Toni Morrison book. So I've read Beloved and a Mercy, I've read Sula, um, The Bluest Eye, and one other one. And I've never read a bad one. What's the other one that I read? Tar Baby. I read Tar Baby. And yeah, um, they've all been great. So pick this one up. I don't think anybody needs to be told to read Toni Morrison. Actually, not true. In the, in the way things are going... Pick up Toni Morrison and read her. Yeah, because it wasn't one of her books banned because people are stupid. Pick up her books and read them. If this book has been banned in your district, you know, I would mail it to you, but I live in China. Don't know when it would get to you, but go to your library and read it. Download it off the internet. 
whatever. Read Toni Morrison's books. So, um, yeah, loved this. And yeah, I think that's it. I don't, I think I emptied the clip in terms of what I wanted to say about this novel. Uh, I think, um, comparing it to Beloved would be an interesting exercise to go through. And uh, unfortunately I don't have a copy of Beloved with me and didn't want to download one. Uh, but yeah, I think going through and comparing the male female relationship in that and the mother daughter relationship in that compared to the mother daughter male female relationship in this one would be an interesting exercise. Uh, also, I don't remember the white people being as prominent in beloved. There's several white characters in here. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely white characters in beloved, but I don't know if there are chapters told from their perspective. I don't, I don't remember that part. So. Um, okay. I'm rambling again. Uh, next week, or excuse me, in two weeks on the podcast, I'm going to read a fantasy novel called Son of the Storm by an author. Honestly, I'm going to learn how to pronounce their name, uh, before I record the podcast, but the name of the novel is Son of the Storm. I just not even going to try to pronounce the name. I'm not good at it. So I will get that done before I do the podcast so that when I actually do the podcast on the novel, I will be able to say the author's name. But the name of the book is Son of the Storm. We'll be talking about that in two weeks. And yeah, uh, please, you know, obviously subscribe to the show. Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, YouTube, uh, the music by The Keep Running. Um, links are in the show notes. He's got music on soundcloud and follow me on twitter if you want to read something i wrote links in the show notes i got some writings out there and i have nothing else to say got nothing else to say so until next time stay safe stay black and keep reading That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>